Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object... I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. Thank for your word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of the... About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious. Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. Uh, getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, 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 would you mind standing one side, please? A while the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, a step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot.
Hello and welcome back to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, the podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we both read and determine whether it's worthy of its reputation through analyzing it, discussing it, and uh, offering our commentary. I'm Tom Panneries, and uh, with me, as always, along this journey is my fabulous co-host, who is just back from uh, my homeland of New York, mm-hmm. and that is Stella. How are you today? I'm great. You know, when I went up there, my uh, my sister-in-law, <laughs> well, unfortunately, I always take a bus up. I always drive up to Jersey. You just stay in Jersey. I, I know some people there and then I always take a bus from Jersey up to New York City. And unfortunately, my sister-in-law, it was a treat for her. Uh, I treated her to a Broadway show. We had to have separate seats. So we were texting at some point, <laughs> and she said, well, we both, when we were driving in New Jersey, we were like, you know, this is really lovely where we are here. I think New Jersey gets a bad rap. And then Jersey. she's... <laughs> And then she started, like, texting about the garbage. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she's like, I think I'm starting to see the dirty side of New Jersey. And uh-huh. I pointed to, I saw a wicked billboard at one point, you know, as yeah. we we're, like, almost on the threshold of, of uh, crossing into New York. And I, I say out loud to her, I'm like, hey, Jackie. And I'm, like, pointing. <laughs> and she couldn't see anything. And she texts me, <laughs> were you pointing to garbage? <laughs> So, I don't know. But we did see a giant rat. I started shouting, look, look, a giant rat. And she was almost going to start to freak out. But it was really like an inflatable rat that was like outside of some sort of establishment. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I feel like she really got the, the whole experience of it. No, I, I love going up there. I understand how people can say uh you know that it's it's dirty i mean but all cities i think have a a dirty side to them uh but i just love it i I think it's a great experience i think it's a wonderful like cultural uh experience i mean i went up to the top of the rock which it was actually the first time i've ever been up there Mm. and there were so many people in line that were just speaking a different language i'm like this is amazing because i feel like where else do you get to go there and just really encounter people um of, of other walks of life so i just love traveling up there but i did see a show just to pimp it out uh dear evan hansen which was amazing it's a new broadway musical not based on anything so it's wholly original um so i do suggest if you're up there going to see that cool cool i went to the virginia science museum in richmond with my parents last weekend and and we took brett because my, my son is uh you know, he's nine, so it's it's the cool interactive stuff. It was actually pretty fun. I've never been there. The building itself is really cool because it's this old train station. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, and other than that, I basically sat around on my butt, did homework, and, and had <laughs> like $1,300 worth of work up done in my car. So that oh, was okay. fun. So you know, when they call, they're like, your oil pump is bu- your oil pump needs replacing. Uh-huh. And to do that, we have to, please don't say remove the timing belt. Please remove the timing belt. Ah, so $1,300 later. It runs nicely, though. Oh, that's good. It's a 20-year-old car, so... um, It's as old as your marriage. It is as old. It was my wife's car. Oh, wow. It's not as old as my marriage. It's as old as my relationship. Oh, We met met when we were in college back in 1996, but we got married in 2003. So, 
And if you would like to hear, speaking of pimping things, if you'd like to hear some really good interaction, marital interaction, and my wife basically making fun of me at times. Um, no. Uh, the latest episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, which as of this recording won't be out until Thursday, but um, as of this released episode, it was out last month. Amanda and I sat down and talked about um, albums from when we were a teenager that like influenced us. We had a lot of fun talking about music. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Wow. You know, I have her on for stuff like that, and we have we have fun. In fact, the two of us are trying to figure out. The two of us want to do a show together. We're just trying to figure out what exactly the show is going to be. So, mm-hmm. stay tuned, I guess. Anyway. Um, I was trying to think of a clever, like, comparison of a duo, and I couldn't come up with anything, so I'll have to come up with... Simon um, and Garfunkel. Oh, that's right. That's right. You are the Simon to my Garfunkel. So. And it's not just because you're shorter than I am. Oh. But, (laughs) anyway, after that very long banter back and forth with one another... We are gonna we are gonna get into our into our book uh, this month, which is H.G. Wells' uh, 1898 science fiction classic, really one of the founding texts of modern science fiction, which is The War of the Worlds. I am gonna introduce the book a little bit uh, later when I talk about the the real life, the history of the author. So uh, I'm gonna a- so I'm gonna ask basically what we usually do at the top of the episode, which is um, Stella, what is your history with this book or the War of the Worlds in general? Because it's a very well known piece of popular culture in addition to literature. Absolutely, I thought that I had seen the film. Mm-hmm. And I had vivid, you know, memories of it. And then I went to be sure that this is what I was thinking. And I went on IMDb and I watched a trailer and I was like, you know what? I really thought it was in black and white. And so I actually found out that my vivid memories were really the day the earth stood still. I love the day the earth stood still. Though. <laughs> so, I love that movie. <laughs> I remember seeing that as a child, that along with a blob. I'm afraid the blob, though, has given me nightmares and I will carry that with me forever but so i did not see it but i do recall the radio program Mm -hmm. and hearing that i think actually uh we have the the cassette version do you remember cassettes we have the cassette version of it i remember listening to it on um along with like sherlock Holmes mysteries and things like that so that is my history i've actually never read the book so my history is purely the audio drama basically okay i am i've actually only heard the audio drama in bits and pieces, um, usually in the context of some show that's about War of the Worlds. Um, I first discovered the book uh, through the movie, the 1953, I think it's 1953 yes. movie, um, which had a sort of sequel to it in 1987 through a syndicated television show, and that was running on Channel 11, WPAX, in out of New York City, um, along with uh, right around the same time, like Star Trek: The Next Generation started up, and then things like that. So, like sci-fi was like huge in the mid '80s, and a lot of syndicated uh, television was sci-fi oriented, and that's where you ended up getting like Star, all like the two Star Trek series um, prior to UPN. So, like um, TNG and Deep, Deep Space Nine, and uh, and I'm thinking of oh, like Babylon Five. Um, and uh, you get into like fantasy stuff like Highlander and um, etc. 
and and like Xena and Hercules, like all that, all that syndicated stuff, and, and the War of the Worlds was kind of at the first, at kind of the forefront, the first wave of it. Um, so then I went and I read the book. Um, I re- I remember vividly. Um, just just sit back. I'm gonna put an onion on my belt. Um, oh, I, I uh, love those little onion belts. <laughs> I uh, it was the style at the time. Um, I know. I uh, I remember vividly like reading it. It was New Year's Eve, and it was either New Year's Eve. It was either uh, New Year's Eve 1987 to 88 or 88 to 89. I'm not sure the exact year, but I do remember 1887. 1987. Oh, okay. Because I was like, isn't that before? Did you meet H.G. Wells? Is that where the story's going? (laughs) Oh, man. No, it's Jules Verne who's the time traveler in that Uh, Superman episode, right? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if Bailey Bailey, uh, listens to this show. I'm pretty sure if he has his Tempest Fugitive, and I want to say it's Jules Verne who's the time traveler guy. Or, or at some point, I don't know, I'm mixing up my, my Lois and Clarks. But anyway, um, no, it was 1987, Stella. I'm not that okay. old. I'm going to be 40 this year, not 400. Um, and uh, we would go to my grandmother's for New Year's Eve because my parents would go out with friends and stuff. So they'd, And my grandmother had lived around the block. So my grandmother would let us stay up. And usually we would watch, you know, Dick Clark's New Year's Rock, and you know, like the usual stuff you do. And um, I remember one year I had checked War of the Worlds out of the library. It was this gorgeous hardcover edition that had, I think it, had, it might have had illustrations, and I just remember the cover very vividly. And I read it for the first time. And then about a year or so later, or later that school year, um, the PTA had a book fair in my elementary school. And I bought a copy of the War of the Worlds, the Watermill Classic Edition. It's complete and unabridged. I am holding it in my hand right now, and it is in four pieces <laughs> because I was taking notes today, and it started to fall apart on me. Oh. It's like a thirty-year-old copy of this book, and it has compliments of Lincoln Avenue PTA in the uh, it, it, on the inside cover, and it has my name written in my uh, fifth-grader uh, scribble. So. So yeah, so I've read this. I've read this two or three times. This is my, probably about my third time reading it. I remember reading it at least once uh, then. And then um, it's always kind of been in the back of my mind, especially since there have been a lot of alien invasion movies that have come out since I was a kid, from like Independence Day. Independence Day is probably the one I remember the most. And uh, and I see how much and we'll get to this into this later. I see how much uh, much of those things owe to this book. So this is one of the reasons I, I try I, I picked it. It's like this kind of archetype, this sort of genre, like benchmark, landmark, or whatever you want to call it, and stuff. So um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get into a little bit of the biography of H.G. Wells himself, and then a little bit of background on the book, and then I will go ahead and give us the plot synopsis, and we'll get into our discussion. So Stella gets to sit back and think about taking a vacation from her vacation and yeah. her co-host and this I'm podcast. I'm going to close my eyes. All right. All right. Well, and my dulcet tones will put you to sleep. My soothing yeah, tones. can be like the sound machine thing. I'm actually not joking. Sometimes my wife actually asks me to speak to her <laughs> so that she'll start to doze off. So tell me uh, about your day. And I get this sort of oh like yeah. Bueller 
Bueller. Oh, boy. Fry. Fry. Okay, here we go. H.G. Wells is an incredibly well-known author and is most famous for being one of the fathers of science fiction, having written The War of the Worlds, of course, as well as The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, and The Island of Dr. Moreau. He was born in England in 1866, and during much of his early adult life, he studied biology under Thomas Huxley, who, by the way, is actually the grandfather of Elvis Huxley, the author of uh, Brave New World. Uh, Wells made a living as a teacher. One of his students, incidentally, was A.A. A. Milne, who, and I don't oh, know if I'm pronouncing the Pooh, yeah, yeah. So I just thought that was an interesting little bit of trivia. Uh, Wells has a pretty extensive biography, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pare it down to the period during which he wrote War of the Worlds and talk a little bit about that book's background as well as some of the scientific context, because I found the scientific context part of the Wikipedia page where I was doing some of my research um, pretty interesting, so I, I copied and pasted into into our into our notes here. Um, as I mentioned, he was a biology student under Thomas Huxley. He would eventually write a biology textbook. Uh, he was also he also joined the scientific journal Nature in 1894, and his work with that journal was notable for really making science accessible to a wider non-academic audience. Uh, the Wikipedia page for the novel does have this really extensive section about its scientific context. I'm going to give you a little bit of it here. Uh, the scientific fascinations of the novel are established in the opening chapter, where the narrator views Mars through a telescope, and Wells offers the image of the superior Martians having observed human affairs as though watching tiny organisms through a microscope. Ironically, it is microscopic Earth life forms that eventually prove deadly to the Martian force. In 1894, a French astronomer observed a strange light on Mars and published his findings in the scientific journal Nature on the 2nd of August. Wells used this to open the novel, this observation, imagining these lights to be the launching of the Martian cylinders toward Earth. American astronomer Percival Lowell published the book Mars in 1895, suggesting features of the planet's surface observed through telescopes might be canals. He speculated that these might be irrigation channels constructed by a sentient life form to support existence on an arid, dying world similar to that which Wells suggests the Martians have left behind. The novel also presents ideas related to Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection, both in specific ideas discussed by the narrator and themes explored by the story. Wells also wrote an essay titled Intelligence on Mars, published in 1896, which sets out many of the ideas for the Martians and their planet that are used almost unchanged in the War of the Worlds. Uh, in that essay, he speculates about the nature of the Martian inhabitants and how their evolutionary progress might compare to humans. He also suggests that Mars, being an older world than the Earth, might have become frozen and desolate, conditions that might encourage the Martians to find another planet on which to settle. The novel The War of the Worlds was published serially in Pearson's magazine from April to December 1897, and that does show in the novel because every chapter has a specific title to it, which gives you a little bit of a hint as to what happens in that chapter. Um, what's interesting about the U.S. publication, it was published in the New York Evening Journal in 1897-98. In the, in the U.S. publications, the text was actually edited to reflect locations in the United States, um, in New York, and then when it was published in Boston, in Boston, and instead of in and around London, which is where the novel Wells had set the original text. Wells protested against this, as well as some of the title changes that happened as a result of the serializations, and there is some debate as to whether or not those serializations are considered authorized or official. What's interesting to me about that is the fact that the three most famous adaptations of The War of the Worlds actually do change the setting of the story. 
at the top of the show, you heard part of the 1938 radio broadcast, The War of the Worlds, as performed by or- or- Orson Welles, who, by the way, has no relation to H.G. Um, Wells. It's a different spelling. It's kind of like the Christopher Reeve, or George Reeves thing. It all comes back to Superman as part of his Mercury Theater radio program. This broadcast, of course, is said to have caused legendary panic among its audience because of the way that the story was told, as if they were broadcasting footage of a Martian invasion in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, like a we-interrupt-this-program-breaking-news sort of thing. In 1953, Byron Haskin directed one of several film adaptations of the book, although this was his was one of the most well-known. This one is set in Southern California. It stars Gene Barry and Ann Robinson. It won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects. It also spawned a syndicated 1987 television series that I mentioned. And I remember being pretty good in its first season, if my memory serves me correctly. I don't think I watched it beyond that. Finally, there's there's a there was a big-budget summer blockbuster adaptation by uh, Steven Spielberg, who directed it in 2005. It starred Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning. It used settings in and around New York City, including Brooklyn and Bayonne, New Jersey. I personally haven't seen it. Um, It got... The reviews were generally positive. The box office, not so much. Uh, It was nominated for three Academy Awards for effects and sound, but did not win them. And there have also been a number of other adaptations in several media. Radio adaptations, comic books, films... Um, there are other shows on the Two True Freaks Network that have covered various versions of War of the Worlds. Um, there's, I think, Andy Leyland in Hey Kids Comics or Mike Bailey or somebody did a um, episode about like the Superman War of the Worlds crossover that happened. Um, so there, there, it's this has been mined for adaptation, update, crossover quite a number of times in the hundred and. 30, 120 years almost that uh, since its original publication. But we aren't really going to talk about adaptation. I just wanted to bring it up because it has been adapted so many times and because in many cases people are really familiar with probably the radio broadcast more than any of the films. Um, and I think sometimes the radio broadcast by Orson Welles does overshadow the novel, at least in, in, the, in the cultural mind. But we are going to talk about the book, and and I'm going to give you guys a quick synopsis. So here we go. The War of the Worlds has two separate books, the first of which is called The Coming of the Martians, and the second of which is The Earth Under the Martians. As I mentioned before, each of the chapters contained within has its own title that serves as a clue to the chapter's events, something that makes sense considering, like I said, it was first serialized. Our narrator is unnamed. All we know about him is that he is a man of middle-class background. His profession is academic. He lives with his wife in a town in the town of Woking, which is uh, just beyond the suburb, suburban outskirts of London. We also come to see that he will be breaking the fourth wall and speaking directly to his audience, so not just being a first-person narrator of the story. We open before the Martian invasion and observatory in England, where explosions are observed in the surface of Mars, and soon after, a meteor lands in Horsell Common, which is near Woking. The narrator and several people from the town go to investigate and see that there wasn't a meteor that landed at all. Instead, it was a large artificial cylinder. Inside of the artificial cylinder are Martian aliens who make a brief appearance before crawling back inside because they have a problem adjusting to Earth's atmosphere. The narrator describes the Martians as big and grayish with oily brown skin, two dark-colored eyes, mouths the shapes of a V which drips saliva, and having two, quote, gorgon groups of tentacles, unquote. 
Some of the humans, including an astronomer named Ogilvy, approach the crater in an effort to make peaceful contact, but they are quickly disintegrated by a heat ray. The Martians then begin building their arsenal and the military arrives, setting the stage for the first battle. As this happens, the narrator takes his wife to his cousin's house in Leatherhead using a two-wheeled cart that he rented. He returns to Woking after dropping off the cart and so that we can get back to the plot and sees the beginnings of the Martians' attack, including their huge tripod vehicles, three-legged machines from which they fire death rays. He also witnesses their deployment of a chemical weapon that he refers to as Black Smoke, and as he avoids death by hiding in his house, he watches the military more or less get crushed. He runs, then runs across an artillery man who informs him that another cylinder landed between Woking and Leatherhead. This means that he's cut off and he can't get back to his wife, and it's possible that she might be dead. As the Martians pummel the area around London, people flee, and the military eventually does get a small victory. Artillery destroys one of the tripods, and the Martians then retreat back to their craters, albeit temporarily. This allows the military to set themselves up to a siege of London, and our narrator takes this chance to get on a boat and float down the Thames toward the city. He stops at Walton at one point and meets a curate. These two men will become companions for the next few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> in a matter of speaking That's, yeah I know <laughs> what a name yeah. what a label the scene then shifts to London itself with the story of the narrator's younger brother who is among the crowd that flees London as part of a very panicked but official evacuation order he flees in the direction of Essex along the way encounters a woman named Mrs. Elphinstone as well as her, as her sister whom he saves from three men trying to rob them they make it to the coast and they get on a boat that is headed across the Channel of France. While on the boat, they watch a destroyer named the HMS Thunderchild destroy two Martian tripods before being destroyed itself, something that gives their transport ship just enough time to escape. The Earth Under the Martians section opens with the narrator returning to his own situation, as the military defense has failed and the Martians now more or less control the countryside. At this point, the narrator and the curate are roaming the London suburb of Kew, plundering whatever house they can find in search of food, and they witness a Martian tripod machine picking up survivor humans and capturing them, leading the narrator to believe that the Martians aren't just there to destroy people and have another, more mysterious purpose for them. Another cylinder arrives from Mars. This is the fifth one at this point. And the two of them get trapped in a house when it crumbles on top of them, and they're imprisoned there for two weeks. The narrator and the curate begin arguing and fighting with one another, and eventually the narrator knocks the curate out because the curate has been screaming and ranting and raving, drawing attention to themselves. However, the Martians did hear it, and they take the curate. The narrator winds up hiding in a coal cellar, but he is able to watch the Martians take the curate's body and also his blood, and this leads him to believe that the Martians are going to be using people's blood as nourishment, and that's why they're capturing them. The narrator escapes the house and heads into West London. He sees that all around the surface of the earth, a red weed has grown and theorizes that this is what gives Mars its red color. He then encounters the artilleryman from earlier in the novel, the one who had told them about the cylinder landing near Leatherhead. And the artilleryman tells the narrator of a grandiose plan he has to form an underground movement that will later become a human resistance to destroy the Martians. The narrator doesn't take this seriously, and he presses on instead, coming into a quiet and deserted London. He slowly begins to go crazy from seeing all of the destruction and from the idea that not only is he one of the few people left, but his wife is dead as well. Then he begins to realize that the Martians are dying. It seems that the bacteria and other microbial organisms that humans are either immune to or have symbiotic relationship with are absolutely deadly to the aliens who are 
slain, as he said, after all man's devices had failed, by the humblest things that God in his wisdom has put upon this earth. Despite this, the narrator suffers what I guess we could call a nervous breakdown, and he's taken in by a family who nurses him back to health. He then is able to get himself back to walking in his house, which is more or less still intact, and while he's there, his wife arrives. She had thought him dead, but was returning to the house yet again and hoped that maybe he wasn't. They're reunited, and with the Martian invasion thwarted, he is happy to be with his love, but feels a sense of unease and insecurity about what that invasion hath brought. So, that's the synopsis of War of the Worlds, and as I ask, or one of us asks every episode afterwards, I'm going to ask you the $64,000 question here. Did you like the book? Oh, boy. Well, I'm so sorry. I did not enjoy the book. Ah. However, I will say that, like, I did enjoy it by the end. I think what really got me was the London discursus. Is that the right word? The London um, narration with Uh his brother because I felt like it slowed down the narrative so much. Yeah. Whereas if we had stayed with the narrator, I would have been more engaged. Um, so it, it yeah. started out slowly and then the London thing just like pulled it down even more. But once we got back with the narrator, narrator, we stayed with him. We followed him through his travels. Then I was like, I was really engaged. Um, my intention was grabbed. And then towards the end, especially with like, you know, him trying to, well, it's sort of the tragedy of him trying to find his wife, uh, and then ending up finding her and all the crazy stuff that happened. I liked it at the end. So I'll say no and then yes. Uh, but this is probably, I guess I was the least engaged with this novel compared to all the other ones that we've done so far. I, I can see that I was, um, I was, I was taken out of the book a little bit by the London portion, um, too, because I felt that he could have, he could have done that in a much shorter amount of time through maybe a conversation with somebody he was already talking to or encountered. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's something that you can, you know, um, he's trying to get a sense of the out that, that this goes beyond the English countryside and London is so close and it's a, it's a familiar setting to a lot of his audience. So Mm -hmm. they're going to get that idea. And also it sets up later when he does go into London, right. Deserted. Like, um, we've seen in, uh, well, 28 days later is a great example, you know, the sort of Mm -hmm. walking around a deserted city. And, um, so it, it sets that up, but that could have been set up in a much more compact way. Yeah. So, um, and it's just because our narrator is sort of our figure point and we follow through, it just is a little weird that all of a sudden we're seeing it through, you know, his brother's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I guess you can sort of suspend your disbelief and say, well, Obviously, he's writing this now as like a memoir, and yeah. so his brother probably told him what it went through. It just seems like the narrator knew too much for what it what you know was actually happening. And as I was reading it, I kept thinking about uh, World War Z mm-hmm. by Max Brooks, by right? Max Brooks, yeah. That's his name. And I just felt like that would have been the way to do it, but then you would have had several different narrators because that was done so well, where every you had so many different viewpoints of mm-hmm. what was happening beginning middle and end of you know the zombie apocalypse yeah. uh, and it works really well even though you're switching locations so that was like a successful way to do it yeah but here it was just it was just hard but i guess what other way could you have done 
it. Yeah. And and I guess uh, Wells really does what he can do with with uh, how he sets out and what he intends. Yeah, because Brooks Brooks does something that that not a lot of people do with zombie narratives, which is turn that genre on its head and and enjoy the scope of the world over. Whereas most of the time when you have a zombie story, you have um, a small band of people and it becomes about them. And, you know, a lot, and a lot of those, especially the classic zombie movies were made at such a low budget that it necessitates a, a, a more intimate narrative as opposed to, say, um, that broad scope of like a World War Z. But you're right. Like, you know, Wells was trying to go for something like here's the bigger impact you know, are they just in the English countryside or whatever? And yeah, the thing that actually took me out of the novel sometimes is something that I've noticed uh, here and there about novels that are very famous for being adventure novels or or of the 19th century that have like a scientific grounding. And that is his tendency to explain the science of so much of what is going on. Um, it's not, it's the two, two examples that came to mind for me were um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, which is relatively around the same time. It's the late 1800s, um, which was, you know, he the, the narrator, I don't remember the name of the main character, was on the Nautilus with Captain Nemo, and there's a plot, but so much of it is like, we encountered this, this creature, and this is what it was like, and, you know, there's all this sort of, like, it, it almost is like a narrative mixed with a textbook at times. Um, and, and you get that in Moby Dick by uh, Herman Melville, which is a whale of a book. But um, Thank you. You're welcome. There's all these chapters that Melville has about whales. And he's kind of, Wells kind of does that here, where it's like, all right, I'm going to vividly, you know, I want to vividly describe the Martians, but then there's all the scientific stuff that goes on. And it's this, maybe it's a, t- it's a, it's a reflection of the age, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, is this a convention of the late 19th century? You're talking about like this age of invention, industrial revolution, this kind of bright, shining world of technology and progress, especially in England, because England was dominant on the world stage back in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. I think you're absolutely right that it's probably a sign of not only the genre, but the times. And I think it makes sense, I think, to go off into lots of descriptions. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, whaling, maybe it's good to talk about the uh, marine life that you're mm-hmm. encountering. I think it's also a sign of the authorship um, and just the style of writing at the time, because I think of also... Uh, Charles Dickens, who I believe would probably be a contemporary of those two as well, wouldn't he be writing same around the same time? Century, yeah, I think. Yeah, he might be a little early, but it's Close the same to. century, yeah. And obviously, we we've had dealings with him. Like he goes off into detail as well, not necessarily scientific, mm-hmm. but I mean, he could be elaborate on uh, maybe where uh, I don't know Oliver well, Twist is yeah, living yeah. at the time, and, or you know, something like that. Yeah, and Hugo, uh, Victor Hugo, and Les Misérables has entire mm-hmm. chapters on French history. Yeah, like commentary which, on the Battle of Waterloo and all this other stuff, yeah. which is fascinating, but it's not central to the plot. Right. Yeah, and I think. It's hard for us now, perhaps, um, and I'm going to say this, but I don't mean this as an insult, <laughs> perhaps uh, less you when you were growing up, but I think now as a teacher, and I know you've read young adult fiction, I think you can see this now, that yeah. 
people are because I honestly our attention spans are shortening mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think authors realize this and so they very much get to the point yeah. more quickly and we don't really see these descriptions as much. I think, you know, the novels that I've been reading recently, I feel like, you know, things speed along pretty quickly and it'd be few and far between that um there'd be lots of uh, description. Uh, you know, I think the fantasy novels, you'll still have that, yeah. uh, like the Game of Thrones or mm. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. That series, Stay Larson, was great about getting into technology and things like that. But for the most part, I think uh, we just get to the point there. Um, there was something else I wanted to say. I oh, think- the the uh, occupation thing. Oh, you you respond to that, and then I'll get okay, to yeah, no, I think you're right, especially with YA Lit, where I've read a couple of, especially why I lit this con- set contemporarily, mm-hmm. so where you don't necessarily need world building because the setting is New York or Seattle or wherever. And right. I've read a couple yeah. of novels over the last couple of years um, that only go into d- deep description when the story absolutely requires it. Mm-hmm. And almost you can almost see the influence of the way movies have been edited with quicker cuts. Right. Into some of the storytelling and the pacing, and and that that really does make like like young adult lit of that vintage. And this is I'm not even talking science fiction; I'm mostly talking like um, teen angst and shipping novels, uh, like shipping, yeah, like Paper Towns, for instance, by John Green, mm-hmm. which is one one I read, and I read this really good book called The Memory of Things by Gay Paulsner, which came out last year. This makes those books like really quick reads, and it's not because they're written at a at a great at a quote grade level lower than where you are, because it's easy for you and I to read a young adult lit novel because we're such avid readers and we've read things that are, you know, at a much like you and I have both read probably read like Toni Morrison or, um, yeah. you, you know, for instance, like Beloved. Oh, have you read Beloved? Yes, I have. I read it in college, I, I, you know. So, so, but we've both read those things, or Dostoevsky, yeah. or, or some of these. So, so going over to John Green, it's like it's easier for us to read. But the way those books are paced, you're right; they're really, mm-hmm. really quick, and you see that in movies too. You can watch a science fiction or horror movie from like the 1970s, and like watch The Exorcist and compare it to something that's out now, and The Exorcist yeah. is so much slower paced, even though The Exorcist is so good. But, um, but you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I think. You know, I can usually read like maybe, you know, in an hour I could probably read 50 pages. But if it's something like Anna Karenina, it's going to like cut in half or less. So it it certainly uh, slows down. Regarding his occupation, because you talked about that. And well, or at least it. No, it, I'm I'm pushing that regarding the science. Yes, I think this was also a problem I had, and it wasn't because it goes into scientific description, but I just wondered if the narrator knows too much, because the narrator describes himself as a philosopher uh, uh-huh. that you see at the beginning and then at the end, and I'm just thinking to myself, even though clearly at the beginning, I think being a philosopher you have a curiosity as do mm-hmm. most people and and uh you could tell at the beginning he was sort of looking up at the stars and and you know 
discussing that, but I feel like as you go through, it seems like, are you sure you're a philosopher, sir? Because you seem to know a lot. And I almost wonder if it would have been better to have like a more normalized, quote unquote, normalized viewpoint and it be less sciencey, but more like, you know, this strange thing happened. I can't explain, you know, and be more on the level of us. But do you think he knew too much or is it, does it just work out? Okay. I, I did wonder if that was Wells inserting himself into his mm. narrator too much because mm-hmm. Wells himself, like I said, he was a bio, he was essentially a biology teacher, so he was explaining things in the way that that you would as a teacher. So maybe he was not necessarily able to detach himself from the narrator, and because the narrator, ha- this the this is the second book in a row, or well, kind of the third book in a row where we haven't had a specific name for the narrator. Um, the little prince is named the, he's just the pilot, right? There's no, we don't get a first and last name of the no. narrator of the little prince. And then mm-hmm. we get a last name for the narrator of Rebecca. We at least know that she's the second Mrs. De Winter, but we don't get, <laughs> right. we don't get a, an actual name and our narrator here. So if it's Wells himself, it makes sense. But, I had nothing to lead me to believe that it was Wells narrating his own book. You know, like if, yeah. if I knew, if I knew Wells, knowing knowing a little bit, and I only knew what I knew about Wells after I looked it up after reading the book. So if I knew about who Wells was going in, and oh, he is the narrator of the story, it makes sense. But I think that's a little too much to ask of a reader who's going to go into this novel cold. Mm. What I will say, though, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, though, (laughs) the plot synopsis, no matter how you read it, either if you have the one that I wrote here or if you go read the Cliff Notes version or the Wikipedia page, makes this out to be much more engaging than some of the actual text does. Like, I can see why this has been adapted and adapted and adapted and adapted. Because there are key scenes that are exciting. And like I said, it, it does kind of, you're right, it, the pacing does it does move very slowly at times. Um, especially through all the scientific uh, scientific stuff. But like the death ray scene, where they're, where they're all standing around, they're looking in, and the heat ray comes out and just disintegrates them. And it's just kind of like, oh crap, it's, it's a really good sort of surprise scene. Of, of, you know, this is what the intention of the Martians is, um, which would be copied so many times. I mean, just, yeah. I brought up Independence Day. Mm-hmm. You know, the most famous scene from Independence Day is um, it blowing up the White House. Oh, Easily, yeah. that's the most famous scene. At least it was in the trailer from what I remember. And that's a scene that is basically this. We're all standing around and there's these alien flying saucers out here. And here comes the heat ray. <laughs> and the aliens never say anything, you know. So it's basically yeah. what this is, and um, so that's that's where I really do, the, and I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about this book is its effect on other genre, uh, on the rest of the genre. But uh, but we'll we'll get to that. Or the people standing at the top of the tower, and like one of them is like, "Welcome," yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or whatever it is, and then they get blown up. Uh oh. <laughs> Yeah. So we talked about the narrator a little bit, and we did talk about his brother in London, and um, I thought I thought that was a really good um, point that you made. Uh, 
On on the other hand, though, I kind of like the story of the naval battle because I just think it's an engaging story. I just don't think... It's almost like you wanted to... Maybe, I don't know, it's because he was serializing it or what, but an editor would have said, I know you really like this section, but it interrupts the flow. And you have to get rid of it. Yeah. You know, like publish it as a short story. Put it into the back as an appendix or something. You know? Make it a make it a special feature on the DVD. You know, like that sort of thing. It's that it's that scene that was cut from the film that you know the director really liked, but when push come to shove, it didn't work. Yeah. And but he uh, left it in. I guess perhaps Wells really wanted I mean with the countryside and everything, and really everything else, I'd say 80% of it or 90 was all taking place on land. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you just wanted another element in there. And, of course, you know, the air wasn't really an option at the time. Um, so perhaps he just wanted a change of setting, and that's why he had it out there. Because I agree that it's it's nice and it's different, but it does seem like it's a little out of place. So the the other point I made re- regarding the defeat of the military in London was, and, and you had already mentioned World War Z by Max Brooks, and I wanted to kind of bring it back there. And I had written in my notes, um, Battle of London in War of the Worlds equals Battle of Yonkers in World War Z. And the Battle of Yonkers in World War Z is this big, like, we're going to make this stand and we're just going to blow all the zombies away and the military is completely overrun because they're mm. trying, to, they're basically trying to fight an unconventional war in a conventional manner. Is this, am I making an apt comparison? Is this, is that scene perhaps a commentary on the rising militarism of the 19th century or maybe what, what you may perceive as the arrogance of the British Empire or something like that? Are we getting into a social commentary here and what's essentially a science fiction story? So I'm with you part of the way because I think there's arrogance, but I feel like I don't see necessarily the arrogance on the side of the military. I see it on the citizenry Okay. because everyone that the narrator encounters are like, yeah, we're going to destroy them. And it seems like those comments are – and I could be mistaken, but I feel like those comments are mostly coming from the citizens saying that and – with the soldiers, you know, I think they're going in, and and you're right that they're pretending as if it were just any sort of normal battle that they they need to uh, go up against, and clearly they're outmatched and outgunned. Uh, but they are able to take down that one. Is do they only take down the one really? They take down the one in the countryside, right? And in the battle. Uh, in the ocean, in the channel, they take two because okay. basically the, the ship then gets destroyed, but they they take down two that yeah. buys enough time for the brother to escape. Yeah. So they are able to do it. However, you know, accidentally it, it, it's, it happens is, you know, anyone's interpretation for sure. Um, so like a negative commentary, do you think it? I I was looking at it a little bit like that. I mean, this novel... We'll get into this a little bit later, but this novel doesn't have a whole lot of optimism to it, mm-hmm. and um, and but maybe that's again, maybe that's my interpretation from what has been decades of science fiction that 
is essentially allegory. Yeah. You know, you're 1984, you're Fahrenheit 451, um, Brave New World, like, you know, Animal, well, Animal Farm is not science fiction, but, you know, um, the these allegorical science fiction stories and films and things where, you know, something is a stand-in for the communists or the communist paranoia. It's, if it's the 50s, it's the commies. Um so maybe that's where I was coming from, from that lens, having watched a lot of that sort of science fiction over the years or read it and thinking maybe he is, maybe it's some sort of allegorical commentary on, um, this, the sun will never set on the British empire. You mm-hmm. know, that old saying from the, from the 1900s, um, because this is the tail end of the Victorian age and it's England at the height of its power. And militarism is on the rise toward the end of yeah. the 19th century, and it's about, and it takes about 20 years to get to World War One, mm-hmm. which um, really is the beginning of the end of that dominance of Britain, and then of course the Second World War, which you know I was always taught, I was taught in the eighth grade. I remember very vividly Mr. Smith, my eighth grade social studies teacher, saying that it's really the same war in two acts with an intermission. And it is, it's this long prolonged end of an age that, um, kind of has been, had been going on for a while, but like the end of the Napoleonic wars was like a, a benchmark. And like, you know, it's, it, you hate to benchmark history by the wars that are fought, but you know, there's this rise in militarism and rise in nationalism. All these things that are happening in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So coming at that from that political angle, I was like, maybe he is making a statement. But then again, Wells himself was very scientific in his views, and you can see that more here. So I'm again, I might be projecting a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I have like a definitive answer. Uh, I can only make observations and sort of go from there. But it is interesting that you have a small group, a small contingency at the very beginning, and then it gets larger, and that's when the citizens are like, oh, it's going to be over so soon because look at all these guys that are coming. And then you're basically like, they're all wiped out, and then he encounters that one soldier again. So even if uh, it is sort of the rise of all of this, is well saying something about sort of their impotency? Impotence? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. Their impotence, their, I don't know, or, or some sort of commentary. The other thing is, look at our narrator. Our narrator mm-hmm. who is able to survive the whole ordeal without really doing anything violent against the creatures whatsoever. This is true. It's all very passive with him, running away, mm-hmm. digging a trench to a sewer. So Hiding. perhaps, so I, I see where you're getting at. Um, I don't know what sort of uh, answer I can give to that, just those observations and, you know, how do those fit into it? Why do you think that you're talking about passivity and running and stuff like that, and this ties yeah. into a question we had. What do you think the significance is the artilleryman and the plan to start an underground resistance? When he meets the artilleryman again, the artilleryman starts going on and on about, we're going to get guys together, we're going to go into the sewers, we're going to do this, <laughs> and then we're going to build this resistance, man, we're going to fight uh, back, man, we're yeah. going to take them down, man. And and he's just kind of like, yeah, whatever, dude, have fun with that. And he leaves. So what do you think the significance is there? Why is he so like dismissive of this this guy's plan? I think, I mean, I think he can see at least – 
in the beginning because then it seems like he's slightly enticed, but I think he's also very overwhelmed and lots of stuff had happened. So I think he's just, I think he's a little out of his mind to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. close to the end, uh, perhaps emotionally unstable. But I feel like he looks at this guy and he thinks that it's hopeless. Uh, He's been through everything. He's seen the narrator. The narrator has seen everything. He's seen the destructive power of the aliens. He was very close to death on a couple of occasions. Uh, um, the closest being in that collapsed house. And so I think he's, you know, even the soldier, I think perhaps the soldier's forcing it a little bit too much. Like probably in the back of his mind, he also thinks it's helpless, yeah. but he's just trying to hold on to it. So maybe it's one of those things like, you know, holding on to uh, uh, Mother Mother Britain. <laughs> um, uh, the queen, point. Yeah. You know, who knows? Uh, but I, yeah, I feel like the narrator feels like it's all futile and in the end uh, futile and in the end they're all going to die but then something switches and I think there's really nowhere else the narrator can go Mm -hmm. Uh, he feels like his wife is dead at that time he just took too long he can't get back there and he's heard reports anyways that that town is destroyed so I think he just decides like what the heck you know as he can be with someone and I think at least that soldier was more tolerable (laughs) than Mm. the curate so I think he just kind of goes on mindlessly and helps dig that little trench there. Yeah so let's talk a little bit about um, the curate. I I wrote it down and I don't know where I put it. What is a curate? Uh, I believe he's a religious. um, It is yeah. Did you? I'm looking it up. Okay, Google. A member of the clergy employed <laughs> to assist a rector or vicar. Okay. Any ecclesiastic entrusted with the cure of souls as a parish priest. So that would be Anglicans, right? Uh, yeah, unless yeah. it's uh, yeah, Catholic. I don't think I don't. Did, but Anglican, yeah. It'd probably be Anglicans. So okay, so he's a yeah, he's a church church uh, official mm-hmm. um so there's this scene where he's with the guy and they both get trapped in a house and they basically um uh, they eventually as as you there's something very natural in the fact that they start fighting with each other yeah and the narrator is trying to ration what food they have because this is another thing that's going on this entire time is that the countryside is devastated. People have fled their homes. And one of the things he's doing, aside from going house to house and hiding out, is he's looking for food. Because, you know, it's been weeks. Because at this point, it's been weeks. So, you know, you don't have... This is 1898, the late 1800s. So you don't have the... um, you don't have modern refrigeration and things like that. You know, it's, it's not like he's going to be able to, you know, yes, the fresh vegetables and stuff will go, will have gone bad, but Hey, they left a box of Cheerios behind, or I open up the freezer and there's still meat in there and I can thaw it out and I can build a fire and I can cook it. Or, Hey, they have ice cream. Um, if the power is still on, which it might not be, if we're talking about a modern context, but this this is before all that. So he's, he's going from house to house. He's finding what food has not spoiled. And they're in this house, and there's a decent store of food, enough for them, if they ration it out, to stay there for a little bit until they can find their way out to safety. You know, because as long as they keep their mouth, as long as they keep themselves pretty quiet, the Martians aren't going to find them. And the curate essentially goes mad, mm. 
and he he starts fighting with him. He's trying to get the food and everything, and eventually, um, the uh, the uh, he he kill he doesn't. Here's the thing: I had to reread the death of the curate because he doesn't necessarily essentially kill him. No. Um. So I, I'm going to read it. It's page 196 in my book. I don't know what it is in yours. Uh, no. He uh, he rose to his knees, for he had been sitting in the dark, darkness near the copper. I have been still for too long, he said in a tone that must have reached the pit. And now I must bear witness. Woe to this unfaithful city. Woe, woe, woe <laughs> to the inhabitants of the earth. By reason of the, the, of the other voices of the trumpet, shut up, I said, rising to my feet. And in a terror, lest the Martians should hear us, for God's sake, nay, shouted the curate at the top of his voice, standing likewise and extending his arms. Speak, the word of the Lord is upon me. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ. Oh um, no! In three strides, he was at the door leading into the kitchen. I must bear my witness. I go. It has already been too long delayed. I put out my hand and felt the meat chopper hanging on the wall. In a flash, I was after him. I was fierce with fear. Before he was halfway across the kitchen, I had overtaken him. With one last touch of humanity, I turned the blade back and struck him with the butt. He went, he went headlong forward and lay stretched out on the ground. I stumbled over him and stood panting. He lay still. Suddenly, I heard a noise without. The run and smash of slipping plaster and the triangular aperture in the wall was darkened. I looked up and saw the lower surface of a handling machine coming slowly across the hole. One of its gripping limbs curled amid the debris. Another limb appeared, feeling its way over the fallen beams. I stood petrified, staring. Then I saw through a sort of glass plate near the edge of the body face, of the body the face, as we may call it, and the large dark eyes of a Martian, peering and then a long metallic snake of a tentacle came feeling slowly through the hole. And then I'm not going to, um, you know, read the whole thing, but basically the Martian takes the curate, the unconscious curate for whatever, um, blood sucking nefarious purpose he has. And this is where I think the novel gets its reputation as being what it is, because I'm reading that description. And I'm like, wow, that's gripping. That's like, this is a little bit of horror. It's mm-hmm. a little bit of suspense. And had the whole thing been like that and had been slightly quicker paced in it, I think you're right. I think you, we both might have not been as critical of some of the conventions. But again, it's a convention of the time. But okay, so he, he knocks the curate out with the butt. In fact, he doesn't, he's holding a meat chopper, meaning that there's a blade. So he mm-hmm. could have, <laughs> he could have just cut the guy in half. I'm sure he considered it because he said his last vestige of humanity, he turned it around. Yeah, so, um, is it, uh, I don't, you had asked if it's a murder, and I don't consider it a murder. Okay. I can. I considered it manslaughter, or that he led yeah, to Yeah, because I, I think he is at fault to a certain extent. Yeah, because yeah, he knocked yeah. the guy out, but the guy, but, but at the same time, he was also acting out of fear for his own survival. Right. And, and it's a question that, that, that we had asked in our notes. Um, whenever you have, like, an apocalyptic sort of story like this, whether it be zombies or um, an alien invasion or uh, something like Contagion, <gasps> the, the the film or the Batman story, um, there's this, there's people who work together and then there's also the moment where it becomes every man for himself. And uh, we're talking zombie apocalypse today in, my, in one of my English classes and one of my students looks up at me and says, what about your family? I said, what about your family? He said, wow, that's a tough decision to make. And I said, yeah, it is. If you think about it, when does it become 
you're slowing me down. Like, when do you click and all of a sudden you're thinking of your own survival? And up until that point, he's trying to keep them both alive. You know? He's Mm -hmm. rationing food for both of them. And then the curate is going mad, and he's screaming, and he's like, you're going to get us both killed, and that's why he hits him. To shut him up. But it's too late by that point. The Martian comes and grabs him, and he hides in like a basically like a coal cellar. And is able to be undetected by by the hand that is reaching out and taking the things. Mm-hmm. And I really like that image of these Martians in these machines roaming the countryside, finding humans and snatching them up and putting them for whatever use they have. Blood bags. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's such a, it's again, it's this scary kind of horrific image that I'm like, mm-hmm. that's a really good image. Yeah. So, but why is it? Why is it that there's every man for himself? Why is it every man for himself? Um, well, I first at least want to say that it wasn't just the situation with the house, but it it was from the very big get go <laughs> with the curate and our narrator that mm-hmm. the curate was causing issues. Um, he was not, and I mean it's it's a tough situation to be in when you feel like you know the world is at an end. Um, but he was not acclimating well to this new lifestyle and there were times when he was like gonna stay and the narrator went off and then the guy came and i remember this one line of uh i can't remember the situation but it was like right before the house Uh the narrator had said something like oh i wish i had left him at that point and i was like oh i bet something bad's about to happen but he is he's very annoying with everything i mean eating all the food constant complaining and i don't know if there's a commentary here because he does go off on his little you know god cleanse the world rant Mm -hmm. but to a certain extent um i don't know he should be like ready to go at any time you know if he's a man of the cloth like if this is the the second coming yeah then he should be almost welcoming it and instead he's like very fearful of it and like running away from it but he was a very obnoxious character um and it's just one of those situations where <laughs> you've got to protect yourself and unfortunately he had to knock that guy out uh in order to do it um it reminded me of a scene from the walking dead that i watched uh-huh. where a baby was crying and the girl that was carrying the baby like put her hand over the baby's mouth because the zombies you know are attracted by yeah, noise yeah, yeah, yeah. and then as a viewer you're like oh dear lord that girl is suffocating the baby so you're like what's going to happen luckily the baby is still alive but um it just sort of reminded me of that so why your main question was uh why is it every man for himself that was yeah, your question like, like yeah the question the question was um is the loss of culture and civilization the first to go during world ending crisis so oh. what is it about what is yeah. it about these the this this genre of literature apocalypse holocausts aliens invasions of sci-fi that lead to this this confrontation with your fellow man it's true yeah and i want to read that cuz i'm sorry we don't match up reader listenership um <laughs> because <laughs> the past two times we've accidentally had the same yeah. book now we don't can you tell me it's- what chapter it's in uh oh absolutely let's flash back it is chapter seven in um the man on put num- oh i'm on sorry the, the second part second okay. part all right 
So our narrator says, but if that is so, what is there to live for? Let me back up, see what this is here. Oh, I guess the artillery man, he said, the game's up, we're beat. He talks about cities, nations, civilization, progress, it's all over. And then our narrator says, but if that is so, what is there to live for? And the artillery man looked at me for a moment. There won't be any more blessed concerts for a million years or so. There won't be any Royal Academy of Arts and no nice little fees at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I reckon the game is up. If you've got any drawing room manners or a dislike to eating peas with a knife or dropping at it, H's? I don't know what that is. You better chuck. What is an H? Uh, you better chuck them away. They ain't no further use. Um, so as well as you're sort of getting at man to man relationships. Yeah. Man as human being. And I was also thinking about like, look at all these things that, you know, how quickly they fall away when this all happens. But it even talks about sort of relationships and, and dining and things. I guess. Once you get down to it, I guess those parts are like the frivolous things of society. Um, those are perhaps the things that you build last, maybe, when you're, you know, creating some sort of society. Um, I, I think about, uh, I, you know, I teach the Aeneid, mm-hmm. and one of the sections in book, um, in book one, when Aeneas finally lands, of course, unfortunately, he's not where he's supposed to be. But he's in Carthage, and he's wandering around with his good friend, and they see, you know, Carthage being built up because the queen had just settled there. And it goes through the different things like the roads, and there are harbors being made, uh, fortifications. So it's going through different things that a city would need. And then it has, like, theaters. And the theaters is, I believe, the very last thing, so culture and everything. Um, so I guess it's sort of the last, you know, what is that, last hired, first fired? Mm-hmm. So you have to have everything else that's very stable. You need, you know, networks, places to live, things like that. And yeah. I guess civilizations are the, the frivolous part. So, of course, that would be the, the thing to die first. And then with relationships with people, I think, you know, this almost connects to, dear Lord, it's happening again. This almost connects to the call All of the wild. wild. It really does. <laughs> because uh, it really is, y- you can't act in a way uh, that we do now where we feel safe and secure, where we're trusting that a red light, someone's probably going to stop on the other end and you can, you know, go through. It's not going to be like that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I-, I think you sort of let all those preconceived notions go. Uh, you don't trust really anything of your surroundings because everything has really changed and you're almost starting over and trying to figure out a way to live in this in this new place. And I think it changes who we are as people um, and then how we interact with other people as well. So, uh, you know, it's funny you got to the where you, your student was talking about family and everything. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about our narrator and I wonder, was our narrator being selfish? Um and I think it could probably go either way. I honestly think that he cared for her, and he thought that it'd probably be best that she stay with her, um, with his cousin. Um, but oh gosh, did he really have to return the cart? And then yeah. you see how like he did it in vain because he goes back and that man is dead. Yeah. Uh, so he didn't even need to do that. And I just thought, you know, if this is really the end of the world, is that man going to care about his cart <laughs> that is, you have? And you know, but is that? I mean, granted, that is. Con- that's a little contrived anyway. Yeah. Because he has to get back. You have to get the main character back to where the action is. It's true. Yeah. Is, but in, in, in world to no prize it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. 
is it more of an excuse for him to get back into the middle of the action? Like, uh, I think, yeah, I yeah, think like, it's certainly plot wise that works out. And it could also, if we go back to our, what we're talking about now, it could also be him holding on to those last vestiges of civilization, civilization that this yeah. is the right thing to do. I borrowed this. I told him I would give it back. I need to go give it back. But that society, like, look what happened. He's dead. You should have just stayed where you were supposed to be. Um, but, but I certainly do get obviously the, the <laughs> more for, I, I don't know, like a good word to describe it, but yeah, it plot centric. Why he did need to get yeah. back and probably be by himself and not have his wife with him. Yeah. Um, although in other, in other adaptations of the, of the book, um, somebody's got, um, a daughter or a girlfriend or so, you know, so it's, it's not that, that it's, they they have shown over time with this that he doesn't need to be alone in his yeah. um in his particular journey through this although he's essentially reporting as well which is which is an interesting little bit about the narration it's like you feel like you are watching a um i don't want to say he's a journalist per se but there is that feel to it that um that he's he's relating the story for the sake of accuracy and posterity, um, which is why like we can go back to the London thing and, and things like that. Um, yeah, your point about civilization, I think that's a really really good one, especially because it does civilization does seem to, to fall away in layers. Yeah, and some of the more frivolous traveling of society will start to fall away, and that's what the artillery was talking about, like eating your piece of the fork. I looked up while you were talking about it, H's, and the way he spells it is A I T C H E S, and Webster's is just basically a, a phonetic pronunciation of the letter H. So perhaps it's like an accent, like a proper accent or affectation of language oh, okay. that the upper class might have or the middle class might have versus the working class and things because the the artillery man is not of the upper crust and the things he's describing are very prim and proper you know you're going to have tea and little sandwiches and i'm going to keep pinkies up <laughs> keep your pinky up <laughs> Andy, i hope andy's not listening to this it's a terrible accent um but uh but um you know the idea that that all the kind of the frivolous parts of society fall and then some of the basic units of society are together in a crisis. But as the crisis worsens and worsens and worsens, you get that descent into things that are more, for lack of a better word, savage. Mm. Which is when you get into the Call of the Wild and stuff like that. And I wonder if that has to do with his his focus on Darwinism or Darwinian evolution, because that was a that was a relatively new theory at the time, and um, Wells was a student. He wasn't directly a student of Darwin, but he was a student of the subject. And um, is this Martian invasion the next higher organism that's going to take out humans, like you know they're mutants or something? Um, in fact, you know, we had asked, Do, what are the names the- Thing, Alien, mm. Martian? Tell us about the visitors as well as the perceptions of the author. You know, the Martians never do make an attempt to contact humanity. They just come in and start throwing things around. Eye beams. Heat beams. Heat beams. So what's your perception of that? Is this is this sort of an evo- a display of evolution? Yeah. That there's always a bigger fish type of thing? Um, 
if that is true, the re- I don't necessarily agree with you. Well, okay. okay. Hold on now. I guess I partially agree with you. This is what happens. I only I only halfway agree with you, and then I challenge you on that's the other fine. half. And, and, uh, and that's, I, and that's why we're co-hosts. Yeah. So I think even the author did talk about that, that how, you know, humans were sort of at the top, and then here came this other thing. So I can totally see that. However... So I'm with you there. However, the aliens were taken down by bacteria. Yeah. So I feel like that's like de-evolution. Like they're taken down by like, you know, the very beginning almost of of life there or creation, um, which is like a reversal. Unless you're saying that that is the top, like there is, a, you know, something best everything else um and it just something is always trumped by something else perhaps but i just think it's very ironic that you know these aliens were practically unstoppable and then they were killed by bacteria what's the interesting about thing about the ending to be completely honest with you is that um humanity doesn't win in my mind humanity gets lucky Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's not independence. I keep bringing up Independence Day because it's the, it's, you know, it's just the movie that's like in, in my mind when I, when I see this and, um, L Ray Network, one of the deep cable channels that I get was running the original miniseries of V the other night. Okay. And my wife came down and was like, you're watching V? I'm like, all right. Um, and I love V. Uh, when she unhinges her jaw and swallows the guinea pig. Uh, anyway, um, my God, have you ever seen V? Um, I saw series from the eighties. No. Oh, it's good. Final battle was not as good, but the original V, it's worth seeing. It's 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 totally eighties stuff, but it's uh, lizard people. It's really good. Anyway, um, but this idea that that a, a ragtag team of of humans. Is going to have humanity's last last stand, and you know, cousin Eddie from vacation is going to fly his his F sixteen into the heart, of carrying a nuke into the heart of the mothership. Like that doesn't happen. We don't fight back. I mean, we fight back and lose. We don't win. It we we win by default, and um and and I think that's why it's not a. I don't know if it's a pessimistic ending, or if it's just sort of a a. There, there's a hope in that he's with his wife, but at the same time he says, um, we consider ourselves among the dead. You know, the idea that society is essentially shattered and they have to think of what this has brought to society. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do you make of the ending of this book? <laughs> um, it's very ambiguous. Oh, well, just the ending of the, the bacteria. Or do you mean the ending? Ending the the bacteria, and then and then the ending. Ending <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole the whole shebang. Yeah, I mean the guy is walking through, and I'm like, well, he's a step away from death. Goodbye, narrator. And then <laughs> he realizes that they have been laid low by bacteria, and it's great because I think we as readers can see the irony, and he is also seeing the irony as well. This little thing is able to take down uh, these aliens, and you've got the dogs nibbling at their faces. Um, I'm sure it's one of those moments where he could stand in the street and laugh, you know, one of those. 
those guffaws that aren't that that are humorless, you know, uh-huh. like oh, 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 we survived. Uh, I think it certainly is luck. I think you know humanity lost more than it gained. Um, you know, people died, and I think he at that moment also is like, oh, you know, what was the the point of all this? I've lost my wife and and everything that happened. And then <laughs> once we get to the end, end is very ambiguous because there are optimistic things like we can rebuild from this we can use the technology that we have found from their ships and things like that and perhaps think about flight or space travel or something like that but so that you know that's thoughtful look into the future but then on the other side people are still observing mars and they've noticed that it's hopped over to Venus, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's motion. And so it's a thought of like they could potentially come again. Um, so it's a like, ooh, you know, are they progressing or are they progressing, but they're going to die again? Uh, I am happy that uh, the wife returned. Yeah. You know, he goes back. It, it was a pretty sad. Uh, I mean, he's taken in by that family there and he just feels this need to go and, and check back on the house. And I think it's one of those things where if something terrible happens, for whatever reason, we as human beings feel the need to like really beat ourselves up and, and return to the scene of something. And I think that's it's just some sort of haunting, I guess, that makes him go back there. Yeah. Even though those new friends tell him, don't do it, don't do it. But it was good that he did because his wife is there. Um, so that was uplifting. But then it's paired. So I, I guess it's just these juxtapositions of like positive with negative. Then it's paired with this last line, which is very haunting that, what was it exactly? And, uh, and strangest of all, it, it, <laughs> it, to hold my wife's hand again and to think that I have counted her and that she has counted me among the dead right it's in this context of (laughs) here is my life now and yet i'm still having flashbacks to the invasion and i'm here and i'm on um i must confess the stress and danger of the time have left an abiding sense of doubt and insecurity in my mind I sit in my study writing by lamplight, and I suddenly and suddenly I see again the healing valley below set with writhing flames and feel the house behind and about me empty and desolate. I go out into the Byfleet Road and vehicles pass me, a butcher boy in a cart, a cab full of visitors, a workman on a bicycle, children going to school, and suddenly they become vague and unreal. And I hurry again with the artilleryman through the hot, brooding silence. Of a night, I see the black powder darkening the silent streets and the contorted bodies shrouded in that layer. They rise upon me tattered and dog-bitten. They gibber and grow fiercer, paler, uglier, mad distortions of humanity at last, and I wake cold and wretched in the darkness of the night. It sounds like post-traumatic stress, to be honest. Oh. Syndrome, in a sense. I mean, this was not something that was diagnosed that way yeah. back in the 1890s, but there is that sense of, if is it society's unease? Is it his unease? Is he affected now by this thing because he's had this traumatic experience and he can't let it out of his head? And it's so strange to him that his wife is here with them than when they both counted each other dead at one point or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you're, you're just wholly 
changed after any sort of experience like that. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, their old selves, I think, are probably dead and, and they're, they're newer here and yeah. they have to start some other new life, uh, together again. And yeah. In a sense, it's a little prescient because it, it's so reflective of literature that would come like 30 years later in mm-hmm. say, or 20 years later, say like post world war one with the lost generation. And I go back to like Eric Miriam remark and all quiet on the Western front and the end of that book where he's like, if I return home, no one will understand me because they will not have experienced what I experienced. And basically I'm essentially dead. You know, there, there's nothing left for me anymore. And this sense of emptiness after that war and I mean, Wells could not have predicted that future, but at the same time, there's like, there's a corollary there that's just, it's unintentional, but like, you know, there's this traumatic, huge, catastrophic event, and he can't let it go in the way that things do seem to be getting back to normal, yet it's this unease of normal, either because maybe the Martians are coming again, or I can't get this out of my mind. It's like internal as well. This book's a little bit deeper than I think we uh, realized. Well, I think yeah, and even with Call of the Wild, I, that you know, it's not just a, <laughs> a kids' book, not just a young boys' book, right? No. There's more yeah to get no. into. Um, I had an extra question because we we're, were kind of coming to the end of our discussion here, and um, I had an extra question a little bit that is an extension, and it's it's this: is the timelessness of this novel because this novel is credited as being one of the kind of founding texts of modern science fiction and certainly a founding text of the invasion genre. Um, I mean, I don't think I'm wrong in that assessment. Um, so is the, and, and it's been adapted several times and I, I mentioned three well-known adaptations. Um, uh, one of which is, is like a cultural touchstone for American popular culture and two of which are just well-known, very well-known films. Um, is the timelessness of this novel due to the fact that most of the adaptations actually don't hold to the time and the place? You know, is it just that well adaptable that, and that's what it is? Um, you know, do some of these adaptations do a better job of trimming the fat and, and getting the story across, like what, what the better parts of Wells' story are? Or, I mean, I got a nice geography about London, lesson about mm-hmm. London. I mean, in my mind, you don't need to set this in London. What do you think? I mean... No, and and I think we can assume, as with all probably invasion films that have come out or or, um, extraterrestrial films, that whatever is happening in the place you are is probably happening in other major cities. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think it can be put in in any place that you want to. Um, We selfish Americans, I guess, always have to have something... (laughs) in the United States uh, it would be nice to have it uh, somewhere else but you know whatever um, I think you know it's I guess never changing of this is that uh, it's the alien feature quite honestly mm-hmm. um, because we haven't encountered them yet you know if they do exist um, it's always a big question they're out there Okay, it's thank you, Fox Mulder. Um, <laughs> the truth is out make, there. Oh, <laughs> so are, are you the Scully to my Mulder? I guess so. There's our little duo for the day for the podcast. 
Um, but anyway, an hour and forty-five uh, minutes. In. <laughs> I know. Yes. Should we start over? Hey. No. Welcome to. Okay. Um, <laughs> that'd be terrible. Um, so I think you know it's it's up for until it happens. You know, it, it's up for creative. Um, adaptation and readaptation and because the science is always beyond where our science is you can keep pushing it so you know this science was ahead of the time and you know now we can do something and we have something uh, ahead of the time I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Arrival which was a great movie and that was based mostly around linguistics uh, but just you know different things so I think it's timeless because they're creatures that um, it's a big question mark still and it pushes and, and we can suspend our disbelief because we are always progressing forward with new technology and things like that um, so we can always push the boundaries and then there are new boundaries that we could put something out like a flying car seems crazy right now but it'll probably happen at some point and then you push on to the next thing so i guess that's why uh science fiction genre as a whole uh is is always um i i think adaptable yeah that's a good one i i personally i, I personally agree with you and i think that's what that's why i like um, the science fiction genre, and I, and there, there's another. There are a couple of books in this genre that, down the line, I would like to talk about on this podcast that could be adaptable even today, even if they have been, were written in the 40s or 50s or something. And that's pretty much because of the way the technology hasn't either improved to the point where you actually see the technology in the novel in our society. Or that you're right. We just keep improving on things, and you can just kick this down the road a little bit more, and it still makes sense because of whatever it's is trying to tell you. And I think at this, at its core, this is a really well done story. But it, it's also there are things of its time that kind of hold it back a little bit as well. Mm. Would so, you would you rather be killed by a heat beam? Or a xenomorph's uh, little inner mouth. <sighs> Such a thought-provoking question. I don't. Maybe the heat beam. It'd probably be less painful. I was It'd say, probably, probably be, be over more instant, quickly. right? Yeah. 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 I mean, that little mouth dashes in pretty quickly, but yeah. Seems pretty but I, I can imagine the heat beam would just vaporize you pretty instantaneously, yeah. like an atom bomb or something. Yeah. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say earlier. The scene you were describing with the artillery man. Yes. I flashed to Hudson, Bill Paxton, and aliens going, "Game over, man! <laughs> Game oh. over!" What are you going to let her tell us what to do? Oh, dear. My favorite character in the movie. (laughs) Bill Paxton's character? I loved Bill Paxton's character. He's always crazy. Like in um, Predator, I feel like he had that sort of like... Predator 2, yeah. Yeah, that frat boy kind of uh, personality as well. Like like just very cocky and yeah, Yeah, he's great. Rest in peace. Rest in peace for sure, sure, yeah. Um. So would you would you teach this? I see its merits, but I on I honestly feel like I would teach World War Z first, and not because of the zombies, but again because of the differing perspectives and seeing mm-hmm. it 
all over the world and the impact of that and from beginning to end. Uh, so I just feel like World War Z is a little more successful in, um, I show, yeah, cause I just, I like the narrator, um, but again, that brother thing <laughs> just bothers me and I feel like he should have stayed, Wells should have stayed consistent, um, or else jumped around and I liked how Brooks jumped around and you got to see different people and, and how they were reacting and how they were living with it. So, I feel like I would opt for something else, but I do, I do honestly recognize what, you know, the, what Wells has done and, and I very much appreciate it. I would use it. I would do a, uh, I've been, I've been thinking of ways to do more science fiction and horror in my classes, mostly the horror, because as I, as I kind of gauge my students' interest on things, Sci-fi fantasy horror is like mainly across the board. It's not a hundred percent, but I'd say like a good sixty, two thirds to three quarters of my students love those genres, and they're so underrepresented in unlike high school reading lists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, with the exception of a few dystopian novels, and when they get into like we do Fahrenheit four fifty one, we get into if they if they grasp some of that because it is a little harder to read. Um, for for some of them, when they grasp the technology and they grasp what's going on, they get really, really into it. Um, what I would do is maybe a unit about, I don't know, invasion literature, catastrophe literature, where like they pick their own stuff to read, and I do like certain excerpts from this. Like, just as a way of a description of like maybe like maybe that scene with the death of the curate so that it's so it's not like you know i'm not reading the whole novel but it's like you know here's like some of the almost some of the archetypical scenes and things like that so yeah and like where i could you know i don't usually like tearing a book apart and only showing you certain parts of it or excerpts but i think there is maybe picking out some of the really good stuff just to kind of show another example as a contrast or Hey, here's like where this comes from type of example. It might be a cool thing to do. And um, if a student was really interested in reading it, I'd say go ahead and read it and we can talk about it. It's not something that I would say don't read this. It's not Huck Finn. Um, but uh, but it is it is definitely a book where I'd be like, yeah, go ahead, give it a try and we can talk about it. It's something I, I think is, is worth reading and definitely mainly because of the contribution that Wells did uh, to the genre. Um, I would recommend some of the adaptations as well. Um, I'm going to go out and get a copy of the, uh, the radio program just to listen to because oh, I've never yeah. listened to the whole thing all the way through. So, so that, that stuff like that, maybe go see the movie. Maybe, you know, I've never seen the Spielberg movie. I'm curious to be honest with you. Um, things like that but uh but yeah so maybe as a genre study and as sort of excerpts here and there of key scenes and stuff like that um yeah i agree with you on world war z though i think that would be even excerpts from that because that is a book you could excerpt um there are self-contained stories within that right you could say this is like the um my one of my favorite scenes in that book is the guy in Japan who uses the rope made of sheets to go from apartment to apartment and finds the sword at the end. Um, and then there's the one where the girl—it's narrated. It's the interview with the little girl who's like 
the who's who knows she's the mind of a little girl but she's like a full-grown teenager or whatever she's essentially feral and it's oh, this recollection yeah. oh that, that's scary it's like it's, well that's because didn't her mom try to kill her yeah it's so this that whole, was like the end result of it yeah and then there's another one about like cannibalism it, there's some really scary stuff in that book i oh absolutely I, have you ever heard the audiobook i think i've told you about the audiobook don't Different people are reading it, and yeah. you told me only a famous person does. It's like Mark Hamill and Common and and different um, uh, Carl Reiner, Rob Reiner. Uh, Max Brooks pulls his celebrity pedigree. Okay. So, um, but it's the audiobook of World Wars. He's worth reading. Um, but yeah, I would, I would in an excerpt. You're listening to you mean? Uh, listening to. Sorry, I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks. This was worth listening to. Um, War of the Worlds. I would, like I said, in excerpts and small bits, um, not as a whole class novel, though. I would do it in the context of other things, just as an example of like, you know, hey, this is another example, or this is how it's been, this was done so many years ago, and this is where you can see the origins of this particular particular thing. In the same way that if you're like big into zombie movies or zombie literature or stuff, you've got to at least see Night of the Living Dead. Even if Night of the Living Dead is much slower paced and doesn't have as much gore and, you know, whatever. It's like, show at least an excerpt from that. Maybe the opening scene, you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara. You know, that. Oh, something like oh. That. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So that is it for the War of the Worlds. Um, but before we get to uh, what we're going to be talking about next time, we do have... Uh, it's a decent amount of feedback this time from a couple of people, and uh, we have a super fan. You want to tell us about that, Stella? <laughs> yeah. So our super fan of the month is Joe Crawford, and Joe was kind enough to, of his own volition. Did you? Ju- what did you do? Is his name not Joe Crawford? No, I sniffled. Oh, <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I, I, I'll sit. Let me sit back from the mic. No, that's okay. I just thought I was wrong. No, now no, no. I just I sniffled. Do you think his name's not Joe Crawford? No, it is. I'm pretty sure. Are you it sure? Is. Let's go to my Goodreads and see. He, he, he follows, it is Joe Crawford. He follows okay. me. Yeah, he follows me on, on Twitter. Whew, okay. no, 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 no. I, I, I sniffled because I, was, I, 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 was, I don't have a tissue. That was scary. Okay. So, anyways, our super fan of the month is Joe Crawford, who, of his own volition, created a Goodreads page. Tom and I are both on Goodreads, but we're on sort of separate accounts, um, and we're only engaging each other because we're competing right now to see who can read the more books in 2017. Stella's but anyway, shh, I don't want any pressure. <laughs> I owe her. Um, if she wins, I buy her dinner. It's true. Dinner, which is a pancake. Uh, but anyways, just so Joe has created a Goodreads page, and you can follow along. And so he's posting the basically the books that we are reading um, for our our show. So you can find that. Right. I think you can. I don't even know where to go. You just go Goodreads, um, and then required reading. You think probably yeah, just I'll, um, yeah. And and maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll find because I we were both invited to the group and. I'm pretty sure I accepted the invitation. I think I did. And um, it's because I keep getting notifications. Yeah, yeah. So um, we both did. So um, we will uh, we will post a link to the group on the Facebook page as well. If if, if we if we can figure out how to do that. Um, so we do have our we have a, a an email um, as well as a really interesting uh, Facebook thread 
that uh, and a couple of iTunes reviews. So we'll tackle the email first, uh, which is from Robert Ward, a uh, friend of the show. And uh, he says, hello, Stella and Tom, I guess. I'm loving the podcast. I really needed the excuse to dig into books I haven't read and enjoying the show. And uh, he has commentary on three particular uh, books, although um, the last one is Rebecca, and, and, and he mentioned a little bit. So I think what I'm going to do is I will read a little bit about each book, and we'll, we'll maybe insert our commentary uh, after each one, since he really did parse it out in the email. And he starts with The Little Prince. And he says, first off, I have to say, how is this a children's book? I was disappointed when Stella said she was going to take the show to a lighter look only to get this. Finally, somebody calls you out instead of me. Um, it was asked in the episode how The Little Prince is read as it straddles the line, but just listening to an audiobook and not reading it visually with pictures. This is an adult story. The only adaptation I watched was its first, a Russian take, which probably didn't help matters. <laughs> Sorry. I just have this vision of this, like, really sad Russian music playing in this, like, Soviet-era adaptation. Anyway, um, frankly, I was shocked by this story. I don't think I'd ever heard of it before and was going in blind. I enjoyed it but found it heady. It would be a shame to give it to a child as the, all the subtext would be lost if you're too young. You had a great dive into it, and it gave more than enough food for thought. I'll definitely go back to it for a second look, at, but at the moment I can't fathom how this could be a children's story. Um, I'm going to pass the buck right along to you. So I'm so sorry. I don't know what to say. Um, I, I think... I don't know. I mean, I feel like we talked about the children's story. Um, I, I agree that it's, he seems like I feel like I've attacked him because it seems like he's suffered greatly by reading this. Um, but, all, sir, all you have to do is look at that one little picture with the, uh, the, 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 the snake with the big lump inside and it will bring you joy. And um, that's really all I can suggest. Uh, no, the <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I I can understand that we had a tough time. I think answering this on the actual show. Yeah, I think that we did, if I recall correctly. The ideas, the themes, the symbolism, the setting, all of this stuff that happens, the ambiguity at the end. You know, clearly the adults are going to appreciate that. But at the same time, I think it's very imaginative, um, and it's fun for a child to see. You know, this starry traveler meeting this uh, air pilot and, and then just trying to get home and then he finally does and, and the air pilot reminiscing. So I, I think obviously it's, that's very watered down but I mean from a kid's perspective that's all probably you're going to get out of it anyways. Um, so I think it's hard because you're, we're coming at it from you know an adult perspective but I'm very sorry if I made you sad with that. I thought it was going to be lighter. It was better than the things Tom was picking. Speaking of which, The Call of the Wild. Good segue there. I was actually, you're welcome. I was actually looking forward 
I was actually looking toward the Call of the Wild, sorry, when it was announced. In high school, we read a short story by Jack London that briefly mentioned to build a fire. I enjoyed reading it, although as a dog person, I found the ending terribly sad. Uh As such, I was anxious to see how uh, the Call of the Wild would compare and wasn't disappointed. Another horribly sad story if you were a devoted dog lover. I wasn't sure at first if I liked the point of view, but it quickly grew on me. A wonderful device that can only be truly done in literature. It's just a really good point if you think about it. That's a very hard point of view to adapt without it making some sort of silly talking animal thing, you know? So, anyway, back into the email. Um, I admit it, though, I was very close to tears at a few points, like Dave's end. When Dave met his fate, I was torn between openly weeping and cursing Tom to damnation, even making me having to encounter this. London was able to paint a wonderful picture, though, and I'm glad I finally got to be exposed to it when I should have long ago. I think it's a book I can revisit, and I'm appreciative to require reading for giving me the perfect excuse to finally get into it. Thank you. Well... I'm sorry I have been torturing all of us with death, destruction, yeah. and, yeah. and 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 um, and Holocaust. And believe it or not, I, the, the, the Holocaust. Bo- oh gosh! In the in the with the little H, little H. Oh, 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 oh okay. H. I thought we're, you were giving a hint not, as to what you were no, picking no, next. No, 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 no. Like, not, please, not we're, night. We're not, not yet. We're not on 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 night. Um, okay. Yet. But uh, no. In fact, the next work I'm picking actually is. Um, of a comedic variety and has sure, yeah. very little to do I'll with death. I'll believe that when I see you know, it. You will see it. You will see it. Um, but <laughs> Oh, dear. But, uh, oh, yeah, I, I get this. I... Yeah, and I can't, it out? I can't remember if I said this on our show or not. I had more or less forgotten, like, how brutal the book yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> You hold true to that. You, you, you yeah. You oh, keep I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the grave with that. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and 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 when um, when Shag replaces me, you can. Uh... Shagalicious. That needs to get a dubstep mix. Um, but uh, <laughs> but um, the uh, but no, I, the brutality of the book was something that that I hadn't realized either, and. Even I was affected by it as well, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that you did find something in it, at least um, more than my my lovely co-host here did. So um, moving on, um, unless you have anything to say about that aside from no, I mean I agree with him that you're a terrible person. So yeah, okay, um, Rebecca. I started the audiobook this week and slowly but surely making my way. It's not what I would have read on my own solicitation. Oh, sorry. It's not what I would have read on my own without solicitation from another, so I'm excited. A little apprehensive as to whether or not it will be a, quote, good read. And uh, Robert did email us, like, right before we went on the air about Rebecca, but we're going to save that till next episode. So now I'll never know if he likes it or not. You have access to the email account. No, you logged me out. I did not log you out. You changed the passcode. I did not. (laughs) You lie. Um, he also did mention messages on Facebook and I did want to, um, did want to bring this in. He said, I didn't read of Mice and Men, but you did inspire me to finally get to East of Eden. 
uh, which is a book, by the way, I really enjoyed. I read it years ago, and I remember enjoying it. Uh, nor did I get to Caged Bird, however, with four hours left in Re- Rebecca's study. Stella is really inching out Tom on this show. I'm enjoying this one and enjoyed Glass Menagerie so much. I did, too, by the way. Um, I uh-huh. honestly don't know if I ever could look, look toward Tom's picks as I am on Stella. Oh! <laughs> Are people gonna? Are we gonna get so to the point where people are gonna be like, "Oh, it's a Tom episode"? I hope not. Well, because it's not about it's about the book rather than the person leading it. Yeah, no, I know, I know. Uh, From Gord Tolton, um, I feel like that's an amazing name. Uh, Do you think he's a superhero? Really, really love this book. Oh, Call of the Wild. Okay. I should, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, regarding Call of the Wild, Gord Tolton, a superhero, I think. I think that's an uh, one of those secret ID names there. He says, really, really love this book. I'm a Westerner, so it does speak to me on several levels. I may have to compose a lengthier email to explain my own literary historical connection to the piece and one of London's works previous to Call of the Wild. I will try to do that before your next show. Is this still going on? Yeah. Is this what he was talking about? No, no. There's the, okay, the blog. So I think the blog post is the thing down. Oh, okay. So here we go. Uh, number one, counting the P's, P-E-A-S, stampeders like London were required by law, Canadian law, to bring in one ton of goods from a very specific list in order to enter the Yukon Territory. There were actually Mounties posted with way scales on the Chilkoot Route. So counting supplies to the nth detail was a very sane thing to do. Number two, London's Yakut people were likely the Ting Tling. Tling- <laughs> oh my gosh, Tlingit or Tagish. You're too far south for the Inuit. Oh, the Tling. Oh my. <laughs> That's a, that's a linguistic thing, if ever there was one. The Tlingit were coastal mountain and were noted for their ability to pack in goods on their backs like Sherpas, which they did for a certain rate of pay to the pound to this end. Mm, pay to the pound. To this end, they learned capitalism and knew how to extract higher rates and control monopolies. There was often violence in the town of Daya, Daya. Mm-hmm. Or on the Chilkoot Trail, if they found someone undercutting their rates. Yee. Most of this was going on in the decade before the Klondike Gold Rush, when the number of prospectors was a relative trickle. The, the Tlingit monopoly was eventually broken by the sheer numbers after the 1896 Carmack strike. By 1898, Dawson City had swelled to 40,000 people, coming in from either the Chilkoot or White Pass routes from Daea and Skagway, or by steamer on the Yukon River from St. Michael's, Alaska. And Gord had written, instead of writing a... Um email or a Facebook post about it, uh, he wrote a blog post on his blog uh, called Ranger Gord's Roundup, uh, which is rangergordsroundup.wordpress.com. The post is called Johnny Healy and Jack London, and uh, we will post this in the show notes, even though it is about Coral of the Wild. It's an interesting interesting post about some of the more historical context um, of the era and and, and his connection to it. So thank you very much, Gord. It was really interesting, and um, he... uh, he he also wrote in to defend the uh, the, the moose the moose reference, which I'm, I'm still <sighs> still getting grief for. But moving on, we do have an iTunes review, and uh, this is by J3KC. 
Uh, that's at least the username that's given. It says, Required Listening. It says, I am two episodes in and loving this podcast. Stella and Tom cover their two lists, alternating picks of books that we either should have read or should read. Their enthusiasm is contagious, and once I am caught up, I plan to read along with them. So that does it for feedback. Um, thank you, everybody, who's written in or commented. Um, we're still getting the hang of getting all the feedback into the episode and stuff. And uh, thank you to people who have been retweeting us um, or sharing our mentions, liking our mentions. Professor Allen, uh, Ange, um, the Two True Freaks main feed, which is mostly Gene Hendricks. Thanks, Gene. Terry Hartman over at, uh, over at the High School Book Club. Um, and and anybody else who I may have forgotten who's listening, Joe Crawford, of course, and and uh, and and Rob um, uh, Robert Ward. So, guys, thank you very much for, for sharing. Keep sharing. Uh, uh, keep sharing the show and keep commenting and keep writing it. But it is that time. It is that time. We are coming to the end of the episode, and before the end of the episode, it's Stella's turn to tell us all what we will be reading for next month. Yes. Well, I might live to regret this because I'm afraid I won't do it justice. But I am going to be the first person to bring in a graphic novel. Yeah. And it's going to be uh, one of my favorites. Uh, it is Persepolis and specifically book one. Okay. We're just going to do book one, book one. Um, by Marjane Satrapi. Nice, nice. I'm looking for that. That's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah. So until then, just check us out on Facebook, Twitter. Keep the conversation going if you'd like, and uh, and thank you for listening. And may your Jello always be jiggly. There you go. Words of wisdom. Good night, everybody. for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.
So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. <laughs>